everybody aloha and welcome back to the brick house for another edition of bose football final here at khon2.com and anywhere you download podcasts i'm your host rob DeMello. joining me we got former university of hawaii player and coach rich miano we got former rainbow warrior offensive lineman rj hollis and guys the university of hawaii football team back on the winning track with a 41-21 victory in Las Cruces, beating New Mexico State in order to improve to 2-3 and three on the season. A game that you saw a little bit of everything, and we have a lot to talk about in regards to this victory over New Mexico State, and of course, what looks ahead for this Rainbow Warrior football team, and a lot of off-the-field drama that we got to talk about in regards to the attendance issue at the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. But let's get this thing started first with the victory over New Mexico State. Rich, biggest takeaway from this Rainbow Warrior victory that snapped a two-game losing streak? I think the takeaway is they didn't lose the game on special teams. They actually probably won the hidden yardage. I thought offensively, you know, the first play of the game, uh, 74 yards to Nick Mardner, shows the vast potential of the vertical passing game. And then on defense, uh, I mean, Darius Muasau, Jonah Laulu, there, there was some players and uh, guys that stepped up. They, they took the ball away and, and they did some good things. So it was a solid win on the road against an FBS opponent. And I think this will hopefully give them more confidence because they needed confidence. They needed to play as a team uh, in every unit better. And I think they did do that. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but uh, a big win on the road in Las Cruces. RJ Hollis, biggest takeaway? Uh, the biggest takeaway for me is that this this team has talent, and they have raw, can just step out on a football field and beat you talent. Like Rich said, there's a lot to clean up. There's a lot that they can fix and work on. But you, you've seen a lot of different playmakers just step up and make things happen. I mean, everybody would obviously point to Nick Martiner's first touchdown down the field from scrimmage or maybe even Calvin Turner's, you know, crazy reverse field play. But even the the strip and recover by uh, Corey Bethley, that would eventually change the momentum of the whole game. You know, you've seen a lot of players that have the juice. They have the stuff. And at the end of the day, it wasn't the cleanest game. But at the same time, there was enough talent on that field to pull away 20 points against the team who New Mexico didn't have an easy time with and had San Diego State down 10 to 0. So I think there was a lot of um a lot of underestimating of New Mexico State and when you really go back and look at it this was a better team than people knew and it was a better team than they even played. So I think uh UH has a lot of individual talent. I think there's a lot of potential if they get, you know, a really good mesh and, and good flow and get the understanding of both on the offense and the defense. You're looking at a very good Mountain West football team. Yeah. And RJ brings up New Mexico state leading San Diego state 10, nothing in their ball game that they played earlier this season. It was 10, nothing in the third quarter. The Aggies had the Aztecs mm -hmm. 
on the ropes in the second half. And I think there's a strong argument that could be made that San Diego State is the best team in the Mountain West Conference here in 2021. Uh, let's go over some of the numbers when you look at what the Rainbow Warriors were able to do in this victory. They post 215 yards rushing in this game, averaging seven yards per carry. And of course, that comes from help of Calvin Turner Jr., Diedrich Parson, Day-Day Hunter, and Chevin Cordero, what he was able to do with his legs. 492 yards of total offense. One that really jumps out the sheet for me is that for the entire game, the University of Hawaii averaged nine yards per play. I mean, that's something that when you look at offense, uh, that, that, that's a number, that's a magic number that you're chasing, is that when you're getting almost a first down every single time that you run a play, uh, on the offensive side of the ball. Shevin Cordero goes 16 to 25 passing, 277 yards, one touchdown, one interception. That one interception, you can't really put on Shevin Cordero, bounces off your best player's hands, then face in Calvin Turner Jr. and is deflected while you're in the red zone marching down. And, uh, and that's one thing you got to look at as well in the first half of this football game was the Rainbow Warriors in both of their turnovers. One of them came in the red zone on a play that goes off uh, his receiver's hands and and uh, in, into the New Mexico State's hands. And then the other uh, Day-Day Hunter fumble while the team is marching, in fact, got a first down on that rush. But as he's going down to the turf, the ball gets pulled out. So you look at those are two possessions that could have been scores for the University of Hawaii that then turn into positives for New Mexico State and keeps them in this ball game. Diedrich Parson, who I mentioned earlier, 11 carries, 89 yards and a touchdown. His first touchdown as a Rainbow Warrior, Calvin Turner Jr. had four carries for 52 yards and a touchdown. And that touchdown is one that we will talk about very soon. Nick Martiner, four catches, 120 yards and a touchdown. And that's the offensive side of the ball. So first things first, Shevin Cordero running this offense. Uh, Rich, what jumped out to you in regards to number 12 and what he was able to do amid some of the things that were out of his control, which threw the, the, the emergency break a little bit on what they were trying to accomplish? Well, the first throw, the trajectory throw to Martiner, I think to open the game up, showed that uh, this guy has the ability to make the deep throw, make the intermediate throws, uh, obviously uh, the ability to extend plays, uh, get first downs, get out of bounds. He is, um, you know, all that is advertised. And I think this has been his most consistent game because you mentioned the two turnovers, the one interception was totally thrown where you're supposed to throw it, which is the chin of the receiver. So that was an anomaly. So when you take away that interception, the quarterback rating is good. The decision-making was good. Uh, again, he is so talented. The expectation level is for him to throw for 300 and to rush for 100 because he's that capable. So this was a good next step for Chevin Cordero, and especially because it was a Mountain West Conference game because I'm still going to go out on a limb and think that this guy could be the MVP of this league. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of games to be played, but the talent is there at the quarterback position. I love number 12 and what he's doing, and hopefully he can continue the maturation process. Uh, RJ, you brought up earlier Calvin Turner Jr. and his incredible run. We see this becomes a weekly thing here. If you're a University of Hawaii football fan, and, and unfortunately, if you're a University of Hawaii football opponent, it's become a weekly thing. Um, that touchdown run that he had, when you look 
at on the box score, it's called a 14 yard <laughs> rushing <laughs> touchdown, but it was anything yeah. but a 14 yard rushing touchdown. He gets pushed to the left side of the field. He breaks two tackles there. He's able to cut back uh, towards the opposite side of the field and break three tackles on his way. And Shevin Cordero has the last block on an offensive lineman as he cruises on into the end zone. Um, just your thoughts on number seven and what he's been able to do in his short time at the university of Hawaii in regards to being one of the most unforgettable playmakers th this program's ever seen. I, I, you, you hit it on the head, Rob. Uh, I remember the first big Calvin Turner experience I had last year in New Mexico comes into an empty Aloha stadium and myself and Kavika Hallams were watching from the uh, sideline, watching from the stands anyway. And he catches the ball on the right side of the field. And I'll never forget it because when he caught it, a defender was closing in. So we were like, that's just a great play. You know, good throw, good catch, great. But then he breaks the tackle, starts running across the field. And we're like, okay, this guy's got a little something. He makes somebody else miss. It's like, whoa. He makes somebody else miss and takes it all the way to the end zone. It's like, was that was that real? Did that just happen? That didn't happen. There was a hole. Where's the flag? There's, you, you know, where he can't just be that much better than everybody else on the field. And then that season continues and you show, yeah, this guy's that good. Then you go into the next season where it's like, all right, people will figure him out. People will slow him down. There's no way he could just continue to make miracles. And this in five games is now the third time Calvin Turner has scored on a reverse field broken play. In five games, he's done this three times. Electricity is almost an understatement. I mean, you got to call this dude a generator at this point. He's his own, you know, flowing electricity in and of himself because let's not forget that not only was this a great play, it was broken. You go back to the commentary, the guy saying, oh, this is going to be a huge loss. They had him wrapped up six yards in the backfield. So to turn a six yard in the backfield into something that's positive, that's one thing. But to turn it into a touchdown, if I'm anybody on the defense, I'm probably asking coach just to replace me. I don't know if football is for me anymore when you have somebody six yards in the backfield and he scores. Calvin Turner is an electric player and truly my heart goes out to him and the fans because he has never scored in front of them and the average fan has never been able to see Calvin Turner in person. This dude is electricity personified. And I just really hope that before his career is done in just a few short months at the University of Hawaii, a full house will be able to see Calvin Turner do his thing and erupt when they have seen what we have now seen for over a year. All right, RJ, hold that thought. We will talk about that subject in a little bit. But Rich, I want to ask you, because you've been coaching footwork, you've been strength and, and conditioning and speeding quickness for so many years, for decades here in the state of Hawaii, and, and you've played at the highest level in the National Football League. What is it? When you watch Calvin Turner Jr. do what he does, is he fast? Is he what may not look like he's faster than everybody else, but is he faster than everybody else? Is it an angles thing? Is it an anticipation thing? What allows him to do this? Because if you do it once, it's like, wow, 
wow, that guy, he got lucky. You do it twice. It's like, whoo, man, what did this guy step in? You do it three times and it's like, okay, maybe he's on on to something here. But now when you have two seasons of it and almost every game you see it, you have to now turn and say, this guy knows exactly what he is doing. Is, Is that fair to say? And how is he doing it, Rich? Yeah, well, first of all, as RJ alluded to, the fact that we're witnessing this and witness to me is what we are watching on a weekly basis. And if you had to think of the exact trait, to me, it's confidence. Who else would even attempt what this young man does? He feels so confident in his ability that He thinks he can turn any play into a big play. And then he does it physically, whether it's balance, whether it's acceleration, whether it's deceleration, whether it's the ability to break tackles. It's almost like unfathomable that this guy could be at a different level than other FBS. We saw FCS. We've seen it before last year. We've seen it almost on a weekly basis, which makes it almost even more Unbelievable, because when you're coaching defense, you talk about backside pursuit, always making sure that somebody has the reverse, the cutback, the the, the wind back. And so people are responsible for that. And he outruns that. And so, again, from a speed and quickness standpoint, I'm not sure he's always the fastest guy on the field on a clock, but he's definitely the fastest guy on the field on the field. So he has all of that. But the confidence level that this young man has is it has to be replicated, duplicated. The DNA is different in Calvin Turner than everybody else on that field. Uh, It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what he's been able to do. And that's now two times this season that he makes sports center top 10 uh, (laughs) here on a Saturday, which is tough to do because you got a bazillion games to choose from when you're, when you're at ESPN and, and all of the plays that, that take place. And, and the fact that you have this guy able to have one of the most dynamic plays, if not the most dynamic play of the week in college football, two times, uh, that's impressive. And, and you got to remember they won both those games. So, uh, you heard R.J. Hollis, you heard Rich Miano say in the past, get this man the ball, get number seven the ball, because things like this could happen. Um, and, and there you see what can happen when he has the ball in his hands. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the – oh, before we move to the defense, I want to uh, bring up uh, Akili Tanovasa got, got the start. Solo uh, Vaipulu unable to play for the University of Hawaii on Saturday. Uh, you take away a couple of false start penalties that that he had and uh, – and what did you think of his game, RJ, and really this offensive line as a whole? Uh, I, I think he did a good job filling in his position. Solo Vipulu is about as reliable and, and and as, you know, tough as they come. So it's hard when you lose an offensive lineman like that. But he, he was able to blend in and make no mistake about it. Offensive line is 95% pressure. You get no statistics. You don't touch the ball. You can't score. So essentially the only thing you can do besides your job is not do your job, which Aliki Tanavasa was not out there making mistakes. It was not evident that he wasn't a season starter like the rest of them. Uh, the rushing game went for over a century mark, only the second time all season that Hawaii has done that on the ground. So to be able to come in there and attribute to a, a good rushing game, that would give you a victory. Uh, I think Aliki Tanavasa had a really good game. And for the offensive linemen, it's got to be like that. There's five guys 
But then there's like another three that are going to be those rotational guys, those guys that you're going to bring in. They're going to have to be able to replace, you know, if Michael Vanterpool goes down, if Solo Vipulu goes down, if Il Manning goes down, you have certain guys that you have to put in there. And it's not that they get the opportunity to warm up or anything like that. From play one, you're expected to do everything that the other four offensive linemen do. And I think, you know, besides those few uh, false starts, which we've all, you know, had those uh, as offensive linemen, I think he played a really good game. And it's good to know that if Solo Vipulu can come back, you have a good offensive lineman starting and wanting to back him up. But if he can't, then you have somebody that can go in his place and still hold down the position. Uh, defensively for the University of Hawaii, Darius Muasau back to doing Darius Muasau type things when he's able to play in a full game. Uh, 11 tackles, three tackles for loss, and two sacks against New Mexico State. Cameron Lockridge, seven tackles, a fumble recovery, an interception, a pass breakup. Uh, and, and then you look at Dewan Matthews and Corey Bethley, each with six tackles, each with a tackle for loss, each with a sack. Uh, and of course, Corey Bethley with a huge force fumble and fumble recovery uh, that really blew this game open here for the University of Hawaii. Uh, Rich, you talk about it all the time where you see the defense have solid games, but maybe it's lacking on taking the ball away. Uh, you see them be aggressive, but some of those chances that they take just blow up in their face. I think this was one of those games where they took a lot of chances and in the, the moments that they kind of pulled the trigger on putting themselves, making themselves vulnerable, it was able to work out because they're able to for, force turnovers. What was your uh, kind of overall takeaway from this defensive effort against New Mexico State? Uh, overall, I think a solid performance, uh, taking the ball away. I think, you, as you mentioned, Corey Bethley's strip sack, recovered fumble was a huge uh, momentum uh, thing for the University of Hawaii. But, you know, I find myself watching number 53. And whether he's lined up and he pretends he's mugging the A-gap, then he walks back out and kind of looks back in the secondary and he still comes. Whether he's on the end of the line of scrimmage and he'll walk over there and create, you know, pressure, nobody seems to be able to block him. He so quickly enters the backfield. His disguising, his recognition of formations, his sideline to sideline play. Uh, you know, one time he got in, the quarterback knew, and he chased him down all the way to the sidelines. And you see the speed and quickness. You see everything you need to see out of the great linebackers that we have witnessed here at the University of Hawaii, maybe in the last decade or two. But then this was an overall team effort. As you mentioned, Dewan Matthews, kind of an unsung guy. There's a lot of things. Les Mintala, I thought maybe they had his best game in terms of penetration. Jonah Laulu making plays. Uh, Quentin, big play. Frazier made some plays. But Cameron Lockridge stood out in the secondary. I thought his coverage, even though this was a quarterback that overthrew a whole bunch of balls, the coverage downfield was pretty solid. And you, you could expect that out of Cortez Davis, but this may have been Lockridge's best game in two years. And he made plays, and he tackled well. And I thought this, the second and the third level tackled well. So there weren't a lot of explosive plays by New Mexico, the Aggies. So I thought overall, maybe the best defensive performance this season. RJ, I saw you nodding your head when Rich brought up Cameron Lockridge. What was your thoughts on number 20? Uh, yeah, it's definitely one of his best games. But Cameron Lockridge has been quietly 
snatching my attention a good bit of this season, whether it's his attitude, whether it's some of the hits he's made or his aggression and beating, you know, screen blocks. This is a guy that plays with fire, plays with, you know, passion and desire. Kind of reminds me of a, a Naquan Phillips. Uh, if any of UH fans remember him, a fiery DB that wasn't really scared to get in the box, wasn't scared to, you know, put his nose in the dirt. He's not scared to hit. And I think when you have, you know, good coverage corners like Cortez Davis, it does a great heap of balance when you have another corner that's kind of that hit stick guy and, you know, picking up that fumble that actually ended up going into the end zone, being one of the touchdowns that they had. You know, that was just him having a nose for the football. So Cameron Lockridge has definitely uh, started to kind of put his name out there to say, hey, you know, yeah, we got Darius Moussau and all that, but, but I can play too, you know. And I think he's kind of playing with that sort of chip on his shoulder. And it's caught my attention uh, quite a few times this year. And New Mexico State, it caught my attention even more so. So he's definitely stepping up right now. We're going to go to the Bose football final mailbox in just a moment. Um, before we do that, you know, I want to group one question together because there we got a few questions. And, and so, I, you know, it's hard to attribute it to to one person because it was all asked in different ways. But one thing I just like to get your thoughts, guys, and, and you know, truth be told, um, as we're about to power up here, this morning and, and get Bo's football final started. We had talked a little bit about it. And so I just want to get your thoughts on, on when you look at this offensive effort for the university of Hawaii and, and let's not avoid the elephant in the room. That is the most criticized, the most talked about side of the ball here for the rainbow warriors uh, here in 2021. And you could probably even say 2020 um, in, in regards to play calling um, even uh, identity and, and what they're trying to accomplish offensively. Uh, when you look at a game where we brought up the two turnovers in the first half while the University of Hawaii is marching, and, and those are, um, like Rich called, anomaly-type uh, plays um, that, that derails an offensive drive. You look at what Shevin Cordero was able to do and, and, and the poise that he played with, um, the way he engineered uh, drives here in this game against New Mexico State. You look at nine yards per play on offense, only three punts in the game, and one of those punts um, came after a, a handful of penalties on the offensive line that pushed them really out of um, an opportunity to keep that drive going. Yet the offensive production seems to be – left fans unsatisfied um what do you think why do you think that is rich and, and i'm not here saying that people can't be frustrated with the lack of maybe explosive plays or you know maybe they want more of what nick Mardner was able to do in the first play of the game but you know and one one of the questions that was asked and the way they asked you know it, it was asked if you take away Nick Mardner's touchdown and Calvin Turner's touchdown, what did this offense do? This offense didn't do anything against New Mexico State. But to me, that's I don't see how that is even something that you would even bring into a conversation, right? Because it's like saying like, oh, well, if Colt Brennan didn't make those unbelievable throws that only Colt Brennan can make, what did this offense do, right? Like, like you can't really take plays away and, and then say, okay, now if I remove these things, 
than show me something, right? Uh, and so what do you think it is, Rich? What do you think brings this this uh, frustration about the offense in a game that they win 41-21, average nine yards per play and have some explosive plays, uh, yet still leave a handful of people wanting more? It's tough to put your finger on that, Rob, but it, and it could go back. You know, obviously I'm a product of June Jones and I've witnessed the Nick Rolovich era and I've been around the run and shoot uh, long enough to know that there has, has been a lot of explosive games, uh, not all of them. Um, so I think it's a little bit of people expecting more of a vertical passing game, but they got that with Nick Martin in the first play of the game. And I thought that was an enlightening. I thought that was a, a really a great play call to stretch and take the top of the defense. And then after you do that, you can throw some of the underneath stuff. I, I thought the only negative thing I would say that was about the offense would have been the inability to run inside in the first half with day day Hunter. When Parsons came in, I thought, he gave them a, a jolt of energy and really ran inside with power and with aggressiveness and with toughness and with passion. Um, so that would be my biggest takeaway from that. But I, I do think when people are not happy with this game offensively or from a play calling standpoint, it's because they're reminiscing about some of the 600 yard games that we've all witnessed, not on a regular basis, but we've witnessed them. So people have to, kind of tone down their expectations, but I'm in that same category where I think when you have Nick Martin, Jared Smart, Calvin Turner, Chevin Cordero, Day-Day Hunter, Diedrich Parsons, uh, and Aaron Cephas, and all of these other great players, man, you almost expect them to score 50 every game, especially when it's against an opponent where maybe people were underestimating this opponent that was a scrappy football team I think they did some good things defensively it's just uh people as expectations maybe are too high in some situations but like Todd Graham said last week you want to play for a community a team uh people that expect more of you because you should continue to try to get more out of this offense because I think this offense is capable RJ, uh, what are your thoughts on the subject? And, and, and just to throw some numbers out there, when you talk about explosive plays, uh, Diedrich Parson, Calvin Turner Jr., Day-Day Hunter, and Shevin Cordero, all with at least one rush of 15 yards. Uh, Shevin had a 35-yard rush, Calvin 27, Diedrich 23. When you look at the receivers, uh, Mardner obviously had a 74-yard reception, but Calvin Turner Jr. had a 26-yard catch. Jared Smart, 37-yard catch. Jonah Ponoke with a 16-yard catch. Uh, and again, uh, the University of Hawaii able to go for uh, over 400 yards, I, I believe, uh, of offense on just 497. 40, yeah, 497, almost 500 yards of offense on uh, just over 40 plays in that entire game as uh, New Mexico State controlled uh, the time of possession. RJ? Uh, I think, you know, it's kind of what Rich was alluding to when he started listing all of the players that are on that offense. And I truly do believe that it is it is a critique of did we score because Calvin Turner's there's that much better, Nick Martin is that much faster, Chevin Cordero's that much more talented, or was it by design? And I think that critique comes when you realize, okay, we're playing New Mexico State. We're supposed to win, scrappy or not. You're supposed to win this game. Last week against San Jose, you didn't win. You should have won that game. 
when you get to games where you're evenly matched talent-wise, you can't expect Nick Martiner to just burn every man-on-man coverage. You can't expect Calvin Turner to just reverse field score every time. So I think the critique is more of what, what when are we scoring by design? When is it this play worked because this play was designed to work no matter who we had there? And like Rich said, we still have Jared Smart. You still have uh, Dedrick Parson. You still got Kowali Nishigaya. We have hardly, including the tight ends in some of these plays, when you went and got the tight ends for the purpose of using them. So I, I think the critique isn't necessarily saying that these guys can't play. We know Shevin can play. We know Calvin can play. We know Nick can play. But when you see a play that's just Nick Martiner burning the corner or you see a play that's just Calvin Turner losing six yards and then turning it into a touchdown, well, you know that's not by design. You know that's just you having the better player, you having the better weapons. Well, like I said before, you know, uh, Oregon State was about to happen. When you fight Big Brother and you're outgunned, that's one thing. When you beat up on teams you're supposed to beat up on, that's another thing. But as we all know, as the Mountain West gets – further in the conference, you're going to meet a lot of teams that are going to be just as talented as you. They're not going to let Calvin Turner reverse the field. They're not going to let Nick Martiner get open for 75-yard bombs. They're just not going to let it happen. And if that doesn't happen, then there has to be a plan or a design to get in the end zone. So I think that is kind of the critique, so to speak. We know we got weapons. We know we got guys that we're not even – I seen 27 touch the field last night. I've been waiting for them to give him the ball. I've been waiting for Kowali Nishigaya just to do what he does. But when you have that many weapons, that's great, but you do have to have a design for when the games become 14 to 17 and we're not just going to beat up on this team. When you got DBs that can lock up your DBs, when you got a front seven or a front six or five that can stop your running game without sacrificing backs, what plan do you have in place when a team stops all of our magic and we have to play football? I think that is more of the concern than a critique. When we meet our match, what do we do then? When we can't just have Calvin Turner beat everybody or Shevin can't just take off on every broken play, what comes after that? Well, we may find out this weekend when the University of Hawaii takes on Fresno State nationally ranked and a team in the Mountain West Conference that when you look at when everything's leveled up, a conference opponent, that means you're meeting your match. So uh, Fresno State in Manoa this weekend. Now let's jump full, both feet into the Bose Football Final Mailbox. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Rob DeMello, on Twitter at Rob DeMello, K-H-O-N. On Facebook is Rob DeMello. And then, like I said before, if you got my phone number or address, <laughs> feel free to send a question or comment um, here for the Bose Football Final Mailbox. And uh, let's get started with uh, Calvin Turner Jr. Uh, Higa 20 and Matthew both asked this in, in um, different ways, but I uh, want to give them both props. Uh, if you were the offensive coordinator, would you put Calvin Turner Jr. at running back to avoid the drops and getting him the ball more consistently. And so uh, we brought it up earlier that the interception that Shevin Cordero was charged with uh, was off the hands of Calvin Turner Jr. We saw drops against San Jose State that were really big. Uh, you've really seen them in, in all games this season. Um, with that being said, I, I kind of, I look at Calvin Turner Jr. And I, and I find the analogy of he is a home run hitter in Major League Baseball. He's like a Joey Gallo type player 
where he may strike out with runners in scoring position and make you pull your hair out and go like, oh, all you had to do was hit a sack fly and you would have brought someone in. But he's also going to hit one to the moon, right, which other guys can't do. And so uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm going to start with you, RJ. Uh, If you could make a decision, uh, would you continue to use Calvin Turner Jr. the way that they have? And that's all over the field. And that includes as a receiver. And he's had some explosive plays as a receiver. Or would you try to eliminate some of the errors and say, you know what? You're lining up right behind Shevin Cordero. We're putting the ball in your hands. Uh, I, I, I quietly alluded to it earlier in the season, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump both feet in. Uh, I'd put him at running back. I'd put him at slot if you're going to fly sweep him or you're going to, you know, just hand him the ball. But I think enough drops have been seen. And not only that, I think enough wide receivers outside of him Nick Martiner, namely being the first one I could think of, but Jared Smart, Jalen Walthall, you got other guys that can still catch the ball. And I think you got other guys that are more equipped to run the wide receiver in knowing it and in doing it. Now, when running backs and fly sweeps come into play, I don't know if you have more electric guys back there than Calvin Turner. And as we've seen in this past week's, you know, play, that was a fly sweep. They just gave him the ball and then he made magic happen. He's not the type of guy that has to get down the field in order to make magic happen. Calvin Turner could get the ball from Wildcat, backfield, slot anywhere and make it. So I think that should be something that you do and you should let these wide receivers play because not only do I feel like that limits where we have to find ways to get Calvin the ball, I honestly think that opens up chances for Shevin to kind of do his thing in the passing game. When you got a guy like that, that you're kind of, you know, I wouldn't say mandated to get the ball, but after four or five non-Calvin Turner targets, I'm pretty sure the offensive coordinator starts telling Shevin, like, hey, number seven's hungry, you know, let's feed him. When you design that in a run, well, that has nothing to do with Shevin because it's a run. And if it's a pass, then you separate your two best players into run game and pass game. Now, that's not to say you got to take Calvin out all the way, but I do feel like just handing him the ball and letting him work, not necessarily from the backfield. You can fly sweep, you can slot, you can even bubble screen if you need to, but I feel like limiting the amount of times you're going to give him the ball helps open up the rest of the offense. Rich, uh, so there is a little bit of a butterfly effect here with, with everything that RJ talked about. You put Calvin Turner Jr. in the backfield, you now remove Dedrick Parsons or Dede Hunter from the game. Those are two uh, game breaker type players. You saw what Parsons was able to do late in the game against New Mexico State that put that game on ice. You saw what Dede Hunter was able to do against Portland State that put that game on ice. You now remove them if Calvin Turner Jr. is in the backfield. Yes, you do get a Jonah Ponoke more on the field because if if Calvin Turner Jr. isn't playing in that slot, maybe you get a Kuali Nishigai or Jonah Ponoke, but you can't have one without the other. I mean, if, if you move Calvin Turner Jr., someone is losing their spot. And vice versa, you know, keeping Calvin where he is means less opportunities for Kuali or Jonah or Walt Hall, uh, you know, even a true Edwards or whatever. So uh, when you weigh it all out, Rich, is it more beneficial to put Calvin Turner Jr. in the backfield or do you lose too much by taking him out of that slot receiver position? It's kind of of a conundrum in terms of physically, because What happens with coaches is they're afraid to coach great players because there's greatness in them and you don't want to change a Calvin Turner. But you got to go back to fundamentals and he's catching the ball. 
he's not only looking to make that first person miss, because he already expects that based on a confidence level that nobody can tackle him in the open field, but he's almost trying to see what's ahead of that. So we should make his second move. So I think you've got to go back to really working on fundamentals, catching and looking the balls in, because I think he's capable. Anyone that can catch a punt is capable of being a good receiver because they have tremendous concentration, tremendous hands and tremendous athleticism. But I also think there's a conundrum as a coach in terms of a coordinator, because if you put in that running back, yeah, you may get more eight man fronts. You may add an extra guy to the box because, you know, he is your best player. But then you're going to get singled on the outside with Nick Mardner and you're going to get singled on the outside with Jared Smart and Jonah Pinocchi and Koala Nishigaya and Aaron Cephas and, and uh, all the other great receivers that are on this squad. So I but I do think that defenses have a hard time knowing from a personnel standpoint, is he going to be the slot receiver? Is he going to be the Z receiver? Is he going to be the X receiver? Is he going to line up in a wildcat? Is he going to line up in the run in the running back position, which I think he should at times, but I would not put him as a running back on a permanent basis because before this season is over, he's going to catch a deep ball. He's going to catch a quick slant and turn it into a touchdown. He's going to take a hitch and take it to the house along with returning a kickoff for a touchdown, returning a punt for a touchdown. And I think you as a coordinator watch, how are they playing Calvin Turner? Are they trying to double him? Cause if they are, and he's outside, that means your X receiver is single. That means the box is light because he is on the perimeter and they're trying to double him with two high safeties. So it is a conundrum from a calling uh, play standpoint, and it is a conundrum for not trying to coach this guy up and make him fundamentally better catching the football. Very interesting. I love it. And much mahalo again to Higa 20 and Matthew for for starting that conversation. Uh, Let's move over uh, to the next question here on the Bose football final mailbox and uh let's try to keep this one a little quicker uh because we have a a doozy to get to that i know we're all itching to talk (laughs) about um but uh and it's an interesting thought uh kaleo asked should uh stop celebrating wins with ceremonies in the locker room until they are better or beat better teams and so of course this talks about um the tradition that started last year of of breaking the the rock uh, for the university of hawaii um, which usually has a, a logo of the team that they just defeated and they're collecting these these broken rocks as, as wins pile up. And uh, it, through 14 games of the Todd Graham era, seven victories, seven losses, so you have seven rocks uh, that you've collected. Um, before I hand things off to, to you guys, I, I, I'll just point out this one thing, all right? Uh, these guys that are on this team right now, Right. For a lot of them, you know, when this season's over, they're never playing football ever again. Right. And, you know, for others, maybe they have eligibility remaining and uh, and then their next year is the final year. And not everyone's going to the NFL. Not everyone's playing football into their 30s. And so just the, the thought to me of saying that anything should be done to take away the joy and, and, and moments from these players who really, I mean, only get to experience 2021 once in their life with this group of football players as their teammates. Because next year, no matter who comes back, 2022 is going to look very different than 2021. I mean, that's just the, the world of sports. I mean, whether you're in college and player eligibility runs out or whether you're in the NFL and you have free agents go to other teams in trades and retirements and all that, um, these guys should do whatever it is that they want to do after a win because wins 
are something that are going to carry with them for the rest of their lives, that they're going to be rem remembering when they're 45 years old and they're thinking about that victory at New Mexico State. No, they're not going to look back and say, hey, New Mexico State was one in three. And, uh, you know, when we beat them in Las Cruces. And so we shouldn't really act like that was a win. We shouldn't really celebrate that win because we were supposed to win. To me, that's that's blasphemy. I mean, for me and my I mean, I've seen people friends of mine celebrate like it was the, the the greatest day of their lives because they beat someone in Madden. Right. And we're over here telling men with heartbeats and, and hours of preparation and commitment and sacrifice that they shouldn't celebrate because it wasn't big enough of a win for you. That to me, that, 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 that I, I'd never understand that one, but I, I don't know, RJ Rich, you guys have been in the locker room and have, beating teams that you're supposed to beat did it feel weird to celebrate those wins i'll go first and if you wanted to make this quick i'd be like hell no continue to celebrate and have your traditions in place no matter who you beat because you will whether it's by one point or 40 points whether it's an fcs team or fbs you can only beat the team on your schedule and when you have a tradition you continue that tradition and you hope that thing lasts because Cole Laval smashing that rock yesterday to me, he may never get to smash a rock again. Like you say, he might play in the NFL, but we'll say he doesn't. The memories these guys are going to have is going on this arduous road trip all the way to Las Cruces. Already have traveled more than most FBS teams will travel the whole season. Eating Subway sandwiches way too much and being together. Winning on the road, there's nothing like it. When you win at home, you kind of disperse and you go to, you know, your family and your friends, whatever. You went on the road, you got to get back on the bus, another plane, possibly two planes, a bus ride back to the stadium. To enjoy this win together, I think is awesome. And anything you can do to make a game that you bleed, you sweat, the toughest game for the toughest people, you need to continue to have fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm right off, Rich. What you and Rich said, blasphemy. I don't know who wouldn't want to celebrate a win in football period and you know even if you want to get into who it was or what team you beat or how much you beat them by fundamentally you can always break it down to this and you could do this at every level and, and Rob you being somebody that covers all sports you can attest to this there are hardly any sports that aren't combat sports where you only get one competition a week in comparison to the preparation you're going to have by practicing five times that week but if you look at when the seasons are off, if you do a game to practice ratio, you probably got 10 to 15 practices for every one game you're going to get. So who's going to put all that preparation, all that time, all that scouting, all that planning into something, then have it go successful and say, I don't like the way it went successful. That, that like you said, Rob, uh, my entire senior year was filled with victories I'll never forget. In fact, every victory I can connect from my senior year to a family member because family members came and watched double overtime at air force 15 games. They had one. Uh, we beat Fresno state field goal. My aunt drove nine hours to watch that game. My mom finally gets to see me win in the very last game we win against Louisiana Monroe. She had been to four games. We lost all of them except that one. <laughs> And like I just said, you know, Air Force, Tennessee Martin, Louisiana Monroe, these aren't top tier schools 
by no stretch of the imagination, but the wins I'll hold on to for the rest of my life. The wins my teammates will hold on to for the rest of their life. So to tell somebody that put that much preparation into something that they shouldn't celebrate it, like you said, blasphemy, I, I would have no parts of it. A win is a win, especially in the gritty sport of football. Well, okay, we've been talking about this uh, for the entirety of this podcast that we have some serious business to get to. And uh, that is that we are looking at October 2nd, Fresno State, huge game against a nationally ranked opponent at the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. And to this point, it looks like no fans in attendance yet again. As of Monday morning here on Bo's Football Final um, we saw uh, Gina Mangieri on KHON2 always investigating on Friday. Uh, Mayor Rick Blangiardi said that he was in full support of 1,000 people at football games, 150 at volleyball matches, uh, but, but we're here talking about football. Attendees would include family and friends of student athletes and staff, UH students, and a limited number of other fans, and that's the 1,000 that they talk about, all fully vaccinated, masked, physically distanced, no food, drink concessions. Uh, he said that he is in support of it and is recommending approval to the state. And that comes a couple of days after Lieutenant Governor Josh Green said the same thing. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green actually said that he thinks it should be fully open, that, that, that all 9,000 people should be allowed if they're vaccinated, if they're masked. Uh, you also have um, a mathematician and scientist that, that follows the COVID-19 pandemic uh, from Washington University in St. Louis uh, telling Gina Mangieri that he feels the same way that, that it should be open just as long as it's fully vaccinated and masked. Uh, of course, you see it across the country as the University of Hawaii remains as the only FBS team in the country that is not allowing fans in, into their home venue. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Mayor Rick Blangiardi told Dave Reardon of the Star Advertiser on Saturday that he's been informed that his request has been denied. And so, uh, and that comes from the Department of Health, that comes from the governor's office. And so to this point, unless something changes, and, and keep in mind that that is a possibility that maybe by the time Saturday comes, family and friends will be allowed, student, uh, uh, students will be allowed um, in the student section or whatever it is. But as it stands right now, Fans will not be allowed at Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. And Aloha made, uh, we, we got actually a bunch of questions regarding this topic, but I love the way that Aloha made asked that question. And he said, Rich, Rob, RJ, make your plea to the governor as to why the University of Hawaii should be able to host fans in their football game against Fresno State. So Rich, if you were standing at the state capitol and you had an open forum and you're able to express your thoughts on this matter, why should the University of Hawaii football team have fans in the stands against Fresno State? Well, it, it always, you know, and I'm not an epidemiologist, as you guys both know. That's not what I graduated in. And I'm not a medical doctor. And I do believe in the science. But you show me anywhere in science that shows that super spreaders happen in outdoor arenas based upon, you know, uh, athletic events. Because, Rob, there's a whole bunch of other states that have similar problems that we have with the Delta variant. But there's not one state in this country that is 
not allowing fans in attendance, not only not allowing fans in attendance, they don't have to wear masks. They don't have to, most of them don't have to show uh, that they've been vaccinated, don't have to go through the safe Hawaii travels or whatever uh, uh, app that you have to get into the stadium. Hawaii has put in place mitigation of, first of all, COVID requirements in terms of testing and vaccination. Also masking up in, in public places and all these other things. So how do you believe the science when the science tells you if you do all these things, you should be allowed to function as a normal society? Again, it goes back to we are the only stadium state college football team in America, professional football team, outdoor event in America that is not allowing our fans to be present. And like RJ mentioned earlier, whether you are Calvin Turner from the mainland and your mother has made reservations to fly over here, whether you're just a local boy, Jonah Pinocchi, whose mother and father wanted to attend this football game, you can't tell me that we can't have at least 1,000 people spread out with masks, with COVID tests, with vaccination cards, with Lumicent or whatever you know, app they're using to get into the stadium. And this has the potential to be a super spreader event. I just, I can't believe that. I'm not smart enough to go head to head with anyone in the Department of Health at the University of Hawaii, but I am passionate enough to know that these players deserve a fan base and this program needs a fan base. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, before we go to you, RJ, uh, the, the, the hardest part, I think, for a lot of people, including myself, to just wrap my head around are just the inconsistencies, right? I am a huge supporter of health and safety regulations, um, but it just doesn't add up when you look at certain situations. Uh, One in particular is my daughter plays intermediate volleyball in the ILH. And so on Saturdays uh, here over the last few weeks uh, during her season, which came to an end this past weekend, um, you know, I got to wake up in the morning. I got to drive her to the gymnasium of wherever that game is being held. I got to drop her off and I got to haul back home as quick as I can. Watch so it in stream. Watch it on YouTube. Um, on the screen that, that is offered by that ILH school that is hosting the event. But on my drive back. And so, for instance, um, you know, dropping her off at Marinol, uh, I have to drive by Makiki Park in order to get back to Moiliili where I live. And I'm driving by Makiki Park and there are hundreds of parents watching their youth sports athletes participate in an event. My son plays Little League Baseball. On the same day that I have to drop my daughter off and run back home to watch on a stream, I can sit in the baseball park with hundreds of other parents and friends and teammates or whatever it is watching this Little League Baseball game. Um, and you can make the argument that one is outdoor, one is indoor. I understand that. But when you just add it all together, the inconsistencies are what is what is driving people crazy. When the Aloha Stadium parking lot can host 10,000 people at the swap, swap yeah. meet outdoors, yeah. Yeah. not needing to show proof of vaccination and not needing to wear a mask. And, and there's no super spreader event that, that is taking place from there. And even though uh, that capacity uh, has been brought down to 50% in recent time with the Delta variant, you're still having 50% of 10,000 possible people at the Aloha Stadium swap meet, um, but yet zero for an outdoor event, fully masked and vaccinated at the University of Hawaii. That is the part 
to me that it is it just drives me bananas because like i said i am in full support of health and safety regulations but when you have certain events that are able to take place and some that aren't then it just creates a whole confusion as to why is this happening and and, and even in that regards why zero why is the number zero and and trust me anyone who's listening because i get all the emails uh of why aren't you asking the question? Trust me, I, I've asked the questions. My colleagues at KHON2 have asked the questions. Some get answered, some don't. I asked the governor why zero. The answer I got back, which we put on the news, um, didn't really answer that question. It was his statement and that's all we can offer back. That's all we can show is what his statement was. Um, that's the issue at hand for me. And as we approach October 2nd against Fresno State, and as we still say that, hey, no fans are allowed, I think that this issue gets more and more frustrating by the day. Um, sorry to interrupt you, RJ, but Mr. Hollis, you now have the floor. I, didn't need, I don't need the floor. Y'all hit it, man. The, the, I will go back to even last year when the pandemic was at the worst of the worst, and I walked through Aloha Stadium's parking lot with an active swap meet and nobody was masked in said swap meet and then came into Aloha Stadium where they didn't let fans come. August 20th, all the news outlets put out that UH is not allowed to have 9,000 people vaccinated at their stadium. But if you check the Hawaii Travel Authority, 26,000 people came to Hawaii that day. The entire month of July and August, you had the- Through one airport, through one airport. One airport, 26,000 people passed. 26,000 people. Indoor in airport. All of July and August, you have the same numbers of tourists that you did in 2019, which set a record. So like you said, Rob, it's the inconsistencies. You let tourists show up vaccinated and they have no questions asked as soon as they leave the airport. But when UH asked for 9,000 vaccinated outdoors, because let's not even start talking about the airplanes that come here and have no social distancing on them. About airplanes that? are full. Rich, you travel now. I travel and, twice. And, and, and not only that, is you take, travel. You, you take off your mask when you drink and you eat and you're two, you know, six inches next to another person, but that's a super spreader. Exactly. Closer than I be to my loved one, my, my lovely fiance at nighttime, I got another stranger just as close on the other side of me. So the inconsistencies, restaurants are still open. You can still go to luau's. You can still go to concerts. My fiance works in that field and she still has tourists coming in. So it's like, when you have that being allowed to happen, when you have uh, Iolani allowing 25 parents to come, but UH can't have their parents come, and TC Ching is way bigger than Iolani's field is, what, where is the consistency in this? If it's truly a concern, then the airport should be shut down, period. Not only that, they're telling you to trust the people that know what's going on. If the Lieutenant Governor, whom is in Medicine, this is what he does, is saying we can have a full stadium and our governor is saying we can't even have a thousand Who's people. not a doctor. It's, it's, Rob, I can't for the life of me, and I know I graduated in economics, so I'm not going to say I'm a scientist either. But if I got the state's head doctor, say, one of the top doctors in the state saying we can have a full vaccinated game after watching three weeks of college football go on unmasked and packed stadiums everywhere. Pick every big game that's occurred this year. It's been full. It's been full from Penn State to Wisconsin, all the way down to Notre Dame and Wisconsin. Full, unvaccinated, masked. University of Hawaii. 
knew that they were going to get backlash by saying 100% vaccinated. I know for a fact they knew when they said you have to be 100% vaccinated, you have to be fully masked to come, they were going to get pushback. But they did that for the utmost safety and protection of its fans, of its staff, of its students. They're the only people that did that. New Mexico, you didn't even have to prove if you were vaccinated. And at first I was like, from the first angle, it's like, okay, there's only 15 people there, so I get. But then when you look behind New Mexico and you look at how many Hawaii fans came, there was a couple of hundred people at that game yesterday. No vaccination proof, no mask, no nothing. They get to have that. We don't. And then you still allow things to occur in this state that an outdoor facility cannot hold. The inconsistencies are baffling. And honestly, it's frustrating. You tell people to go get a procedure done. You tell people to go do a thing and they will be able to get back to normal life. They did it. Why can't they go back to normal life? Yep. They're tourists. They can go back to normal life. If they're, you know, in Waikiki or working in a hotel, they can go back to normal life. But for the people that got vaccinated to go watch a outdoor collegiate football game that is finally on campus, finally on campus, they're denied multiple times. Not just once. It'd be different if this is the first time we're hearing about it. They've been denied multiple times. And to me, that's the biggest frustration. You have the safest collegiate football atmosphere in all of America. And you're not allowing it to happen while people can still pack airplanes and come over here. Yeah, and, and it's it not for lack sense. of support, whether it's fans, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, whether it's uh, media members asking questions, whether it's, uh, you know, other members of uh, the, the government and politics that are pushing for this to happen. Um, it just hasn't happened yet. And, and we can talk for for days about the ramifications of this, of the half a million dollars lost each home game for the University of Hawaii that uh, in revenue that you would be getting. We could talk about recruiting and how the University of Hawaii football team and really the University of Hawaii athletics in general are, is the only program in the country that is unable to host recruits at this time. And both of you guys know how important that is in trying to bring players to the University of Hawaii. And then you look at just the overall uh, joy uh, that's being taken away from many people uh, that that build their their uh, their fall around attending University of Hawaii home games. I think about uh, my father and um, and how important that time is, and not only for going to University of Hawaii football games, which he's been doing you know since before I was born, and definitely since I've been born, we attended every game until I got into this business. Uh, we went together was his group of friends that he only sees at this time of the year, right? They all sit together. They've had season tickets together uh, for many years. And some of them have passed away over the years um, that, you know, and that number gets smaller and smaller, but he has his buddies, his UH football buddies that he hasn't seen in two years. Right. And, and, and so I just think about little things like that, that, that aren't happening uh, for a lot of people in our state, but um, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I thought last week that for sure Fresno State, something was going to happen that and, and it wasn't because they're playing a nationally ranked opponent. It wasn't because it's a conference game. It's a big game. It's a rivalry game. Like, no, just logic. Right. Just tells me that okay, Science, the numbers are going down. Yeah, the numbers are going down. Um, and, and I still feel that way. I still think that when kickoff happens on Saturday, I believe there will be family and friends in attendance, um, but maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm gullible, whatever it is. 
Um, you know, at the very least, I think there will be people in support. And I think students make a lot of sense because they're all vaccinated at the University of Hawaii. They're all paying their athletic fees and all that. And so uh, the fact that, that they're being denied from this opportunity and, and, and I've heard from um, non-athletes, parents of non-athletes telling me that their child who attends the University of Hawaii as a student is looking to transfer out. I mean, we talk about transfers all the time for athletes, but they're yeah. transferring because they yeah. want to experience college life, which they haven't been able to do. And that's something uh, like a University of Hawaii athletic event is able to provide, especially because now it's on campus. But we'll see what happens, um, you know, the, 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 uh, what, what happens here over the next couple of days, uh, but we got to get this train rolling and uh, real quickly Fresno State comes to town as we, as we talked about a nationally ranked opponent a game that always means something I always said that it should be play, played for the golden screwdriver uh, because of the, the, the story time of University of Hawaii and Fresno State and, and, and really it just seems that this team, uh, these two teams, no matter what the year, they're just so much uh aggression in this game and more so than any other game that's played on the schedule it feels like uh both of you have experienced this rivalry firsthand and both of you have seen this fresno state team play awesome against ucla not so awesome against unlv uh just your thoughts on this game hawaii fresno state how big is this and if you're a rainbow warrior fan what gives you confidence that, hey, something crazy could happen on Saturday? Rich. Well, first of all, I think, and I'll argue with you and RJ all day long, that the reason why this Fresno State team is the best team in the Mountain West Conference is Jake Hayner. Cropper is uh, maybe one of the best uh, premier receivers, definitely in the Mountain West Conference. But the confidence level that Jake Hayner is playing with, the ability to run the football with Ronnie Rivers, but also throw it. When you watch this quarterback, he is so confident in his ability to make plays. I think this rivalry is at an all-time high. It's always been good. But I think this year to play a ranked team with a quarterback that's now projected to be probably drafted in the first few rounds, a receiver who's established himself as one of the premier receivers, and athletes. We always know what type of athletes Fresno State has. This right now, to me, is the biggest and the best game that the University of Hawaii will play. And I also think that San Diego State, if they had a quarterback, it'd be in the same conversation as this. But make no mistake about it. We're, we're waiting for a team that if Hawaii plays well and they play well, I think we got an outstanding football game. That's the potential of this University of Hawaii football team. All right, RJ, send us home, brother. Hey, this, this week... Fresno State, it, it's it's huge. It, it's, I think, in my personal opinion, it's the biggest rivalry we got because of how back and forth it goes. But more so than that, I've traveled when I played to almost every uh, conference opponent within my three years of traveling, two years of starting. And the one thing I've never forgotten as a player is the Red Mile, because two times in the Red Mile, I got cursed out. Once by somebody's grandmother and once by somebody's four-year-old. And at the time it happened, you know, a lot of people would hear that story and be like, oh, my God, that's terrible. It made me smile from ear to ear. It, it made me feel so good to know that there's actually somebody that can't stand us this much. There's actually this is heat. This is this is a, a game where 
there's bad blood. I don't like you, and you don't like me, and I don't like your grandmama, and I don't like your four-year-old cousin either, little snot-nosed <laughs> booger. I don't like him either. You know, whether it's them beating us bad my junior year or us beating them by a block field goal by Big Vianne Moala, which could have also been blocked by Dejon Allen, and that setting us up to win the next game and go to a bowl game. Fresno State has always been a great game in and of itself, but when you talk about this season, this is your reset button. University of Hawaii players and staff, if you are listening, this game is your reset button. The biggest edge of sympathy that UH had against UCLA was that they beat LSU, so therefore they must be a great grand team. Fresno State just beat UCLA. So if you beat them, you (laughs) reassert yourself as one of the best teams that you're going to face and one of the best teams in the conference because you beat a team that blew you out 44 to 10. They're ranked. They put up 300 yards, over 300 yards of offensive Oregon who went and beat Ohio State the following week. So that being said, this right here is the big opportunity. This is the Mountain West Championship within the Mountain West Championship. It's at home. Fans are not. They still got to get on the plane. They got to be uncomfortable. They can't do their normal flow, Joe. They have no red mile. So if you're on the University of Hawaii football as a player, as an equipment manager, this game is your chance to go back and give yourself an entire new season after this Saturday. We'll see what happens when the University of Hawaii brings Fresno State to the empty mile of Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex as it stands right now uh, for this game, 5 p.m., and it will be televised on Fox Sports 1. Uh, This Rainbow Warrior and Bulldog rivalry gets another chapter here on Saturday. Much mahalo to everybody who supports Bo's football final. Uh, the mailbox questions, awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, for the ones that we don't get to, uh, just understand that we're, we're super grateful for you guys taking time out of your day to be able to express your comments, your concerns, even your praises uh, for this University of Hawaii football team and for this show. Uh, we appreciate it a lot and we had a lot of fun here this week. A very passionate and energetic week here on Bo's football final. For Rich Miano, for RJ Hollis, I'm Rob DeMello. Check us out every Monday at khon2.com and anywhere you download podcasts. Have a safe, healthy, and happy week, everybody. Aloha.